You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. Well, for my and Christy's first Christmas, we were living in an apartment in Charleston, West Virginia, and when we moved to this apartment, uh, during the move, my wife, Christy, had a jewelry cabinet that uh, I may or may not have broken. So then for our first Christmas, we didn't have a lot of money living in this apartment, and uh, I decided, well, I can't buy her some great present. I can't replace that jewelry cabinet. Maybe I could make one. The problem being that I had no woodworking skills whatsoever. So I went to Lowe's, I bought a handsaw, and I bought some wood, which at this point did not break the bank. I mean, it was affordable at that point. And uh, I had a few rudimentary tools, uh, in particular a level. Not this one, this is a comically large one, but so you get the idea of what a level is. So I would, every day, as Chrissy would go to work at her real job, I could show up late at my job, and I would work as she was gone on this jewelry cabinet, sawing things, and then I I'd hide it all in a closet and make sure that she didn't know anything about it. And I was very meticulous with this. I, I would measure it. I'd measure it twice. And then I would cut it by hand. And then I would piece it together. And I would always make sure that I put the level on top of it as I put it together. Because I knew I'd made like drawers and things and, and doors that would close and open. And I knew if it wasn't level, it wouldn't go together properly. And so I didn't have a workbench. Again, we're just living in an apartment. But what I did have was a TV tray quite like this one. So all of my work, you can imagine, was wiggling around on this TV tray. Finally, I had all the pieces put together so that I could put the doors on, so that I could put the drawers in this cabinet, and they were not lining up. I could get the drawer in the cabinet, but it wouldn't come back out. And then when I put the doors on, they weren't closing together flush. And I remember putting the level on top of it and looking and shaking my head and saying, the bubble's in the middle. It should be level. I don't know what the problem is. And then I set the level down on top of the TV tray and noticed that when it was sitting on the TV tray, the bubble was no longer in the middle. And so the entire time that I've been trying to make this cabinet level, I was actually making it on an unlevel surface. And so all of my measurements and cutting was done to compensate for the slant of the TV tray so that when the whole thing came together, even though I thought it was level, because I'd created it on an unlevel surface, stuff didn't go together properly. Now, the metaphor here is that often we do this with our lives. If we begin to build up our lives by the standards and practices of the world, which the Bible would say is a bit slanted, if we build our lives on that and we measure against the world, we might say, well, my life looks good, it's level, but then later on things happen, we're like, well, why isn't this coming together the right way? I thought I was doing it by the right measurements, the right standards. But the Bible, the Word of God, Jesus offers us another way that has proven itself time and time again to be level to be the right path to follow. Jesus, of course, uses a similar parable, and he talks about the man who built his house on the rock versus the man who built his house on the sand. The man who builds his house on the rock, it weathers the storm, the sand, the house goes down, and Jesus says, this is how it is for those who listen to my words. It's like building your house on the rock. And so as we go through what has been like year two of a pandemic, many people are looking at their lives and saying, why is this not measuring correctly? The possibility is that maybe they've based it off of the measurements of the world, the foundation of the world, a slanted foundation. And so everything that they build ends up not coming out level. So then we're left with the question, well, what should I base my life off of? 
And that's part of what this series is going to hopefully unpack for us over the next six weeks as we go back to the basics. We're going to look at different things, different basics of the Christian faith, but more than that, we're going to look at the basics of discovery. So things that we do every Sunday, things that we focus on often every Sunday, not every Sunday, but most Sundays, um, like we don't have a baptism every Sunday, but that's a basic that we're going to talk about. And so today we're going to talk about the Bible, because here's what Isaiah 10, 8 says. It says, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. So as we go back to the basics right now, this week, week one, we're going to talk about the first basic, which is the Bible, which is scripture. And I want to talk to you about this because, and and let me just say, like, this is for me today, like, I'm excited because I nerd out over this book. I love it. I mean, you can go through it. There's mysteries in it. There's like just so much to take from this book. So it's a pleasure for me this morning to talk about this. And you might want to, if we have any note takers, you might want to just get ready because I'm going to charge through a lot of things. It's going to feel maybe more like a college course rather than, or a high school, middle school course, you know, rather than like a normal sermon. We're going to go through a lot of stuff. So there might be stuff you want to write down to look back up later. There might be stuff that afterwards you have more questions about. I'd love to talk to you, but we're going to talk about the Bible. And the first thing I think we have to do when we talk about the Bible is ask the question, well, how did it get here? How did we get this book? How did it come about? Which is really a huge, interesting story. I think some people hope that like there'd be this idea that like the Bible just fell out of the sky and it's that kind of miracle. So like we could like, oh, the Bible fell from the sky so you can trust it. Like it came here miraculously. But the real story of the Bible and its formation is much more simple, is much more realistic, actually. The Bible is is a combination, a, a bunch of different books that have been collected and written by several different authors. They were collected, they were copied, they were memorized, they were passed down throughout history, they were finally compiled, and different church leaders and people decided, like, okay, this book, that is the Bible, and over the course of time, like, they collected what we now have to us in our language, the Bible, written over the course of thousands of years by several different people, which I think is no less miraculous, maybe more miraculous, than if it had just fallen out of the sky, right? I mean, if it fell from the sky, we'd be like, well, probably a plane dropped it, right? Like somebody used to check the flight logs, or they'd be like, oh, it's aliens, like don't even open it. Might be a Jumanji situation, like don't mess with that. But the reality is that thousands of years went by and many, many different authors worked on this book. And yet we can see a consistent story throughout the whole thing. We can see God's consistent hand throughout the entire time. And so the next question we have to ask, beyond of just how did it get here, which I glazed over a lot of that, like, but is can we trust it? Can we trust this book? Because it's, it's so old, isn't it? I mean, it's so old, does that make it unreliable? Because we live in the technological age, and at this point, things like age more than a week. Like, we're like, I'm done with that, right? Like, my kids have already lost interest in their Christmas presents. And so we get to something like the Bible, and we're like, but it is so old, can we trust this book? A lot of people make the mistake to think that the Bible was created kind of like the game telephone. Have you ever played that game? You get in a circle around a table with people, somebody has a secret, they pass the secret to the first person, and then that person whispers the secret to the next person, and bit by bit it gets changed a little bit, and so you get back to the first person who had the original line, and it's totally different. A lot of times we might make the mistake to think that that is how the Bible came about, but it is not. The Bible was passed down by people who had memorized it. 
People went to great lengths to translate it into different languages and handwrite it and then check their writing. And so we have to ask this question, though, can we trust it? You might think, like, if you have a newer translation, many people make this mistake, that newer translations like the NIV or the ESV, that's what I usually use, is just a copy, an update from the King James Version, which was translated in 1611. So a lot of people might think, like, well, they just read that one, and then they put it in different words. That's totally not what happened. Teams of scholars, linguistic experts, got together, and they went over not the King James Version of the Bible, but the transcripts that we have, the historical records, the oldest ones we have, cross-referencing them along with other translations that have been put into different languages like Latin and all of that, so that we now have a very reliable translation of original texts done by experts who have spent their lives learning these languages. In fact, here, here's an interesting one, is in 1947, 1947, a little shepherd boy near the Dead Sea was out exploring some caves that I think we have a picture of. He's up and around these caves, and he went into one of them, and he found in these caves a bunch of clay pots. And in those clay pots were these scrolls. And this little shepherd boy had the foresight to tell some kind of expert, and people came in, and they excavated these, these clay pots, and what they found were old, old, old Hebrew texts. And it became known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we have pictures of it right here. These were old Hebrew texts that had not been discovered yet. And they found that at this time, so in 1947, at this time, the oldest copies of the Old Testament scriptures that they had were from the 10th century AD. The Dead Sea Scrolls predated that by almost a thousand years. And so as they looked at this, you had to wonder, like if you heard about this in 1947, before they translated it all, you would have to wonder, be like, well, what if it's wrong? Like, what if we read that and somewhere in there, like, it was all a joke? Or what if we read that and they find out like that everything was translated poorly, that we've gotten it all wrong? But experts and scholars poured over these scrolls and they found that what was translated, the, the discovery demonstrated the unusual accuracy of the translations of over a thousand-year period, rendering it very reasonable to believe the current Old Testament texts are reliable copies of the original works. This was older than anything we had, older than what we had when they translated the King James Bible, and yet they found the current text very, very reliable. So even though the Bible is old, it has continued to prove itself to be reliable. In fact, it's just had more time, even though it's old, to be disproven, and yet there has been nothing that can majorly disprove the historicity of the Bible. Beyond that, there's all of these prophecies in the Bible that make it that the reliability, the, the trustworthiness of the Bible is self-evident. It on its own kind of proves itself. If we were to go through the Old Testament story, you would see one after another of the genealogy of the coming Messiah. And there's all these prophecies saying he will come through, you know, the seed of the woman, talking about Adam and Eve. But then he'll come through the son of Shem, the Noah's son Shem. And then beyond that, he's going to come through Abraham and then this son of Abraham and all of that, all the way to David and Solomon. I think I have those prophecies up on the back screen or that lineage kind of stuff on the back screen. So there was a, a doctor, Dr. Henry Morris, who was a statistician. And he got really obsessed with this genealogy of the coming of the Messiah, of Jesus, and he started looking at the odds, saying, well, what are the odds that the Messiah would come through the son Shem, through Noah? Well, that's a one in three chance, right? But what about uh, all the way through Abraham from Shem? 
They'd estimated the idea of the population at the time. They're like, well, that's a one in 60,000 when you look at the people between Shem and Abraham. And so they did all of this all the way through Solomon, following the Old Testament lineage of Jesus. And then they took all of those odds, they multiplied them together, and we have on the next slide, so you can see the amount of zeros that this is, we have on the next slide the probability of that happening. The probability of this is one in 13 trillion that that lineage would lead to the one person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. All of that, that it could end up, all of these prophecies foretold that he's going to come from this guy and that guy and that guy, one in 13 trillion was the odds of that actually happening. And then we read in the New Testament that lineage leading right up to Jesus. And you could say, well, like, well, I could read the Old Testament and then fake that for the New Testament, right? Okay, maybe you could. And that's how you get a one in 13 trillion. There was another guy, I've shared this before, but it's super fascinating. There was another guy, Dr. Peter Stoner, who was another statistician, a math nerd. Any math nerds? I mean, you math nerds right now, your hearts are beating. You're like, I love the math and now the Bible. Here's what he did, Dr. Uh, Peter Stoner, what he did is he took the Old Testament prophecies of the, of the Messiah and tried to the best of their ability calculate the odds of these prophecies coming true in the one person of Jesus Christ. For instance, Micah 5.2 says that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So they tried to figure out like, well, how many people in that time might have been born in Bethlehem? And there's, in, in Malachi 3.1 says a messenger would go before him and prepare the way. Well, how many people in history might have someone like John the Baptist coming before them as their messenger? Zechariah 13, 6 says that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. He'd be sold out by a friend, and then Zechariah 11, sorry, says that he'd be sold for 30 pieces of silver. So they tried to, using conservative estimates, take all of these prophecies and figure out the statistical probability of them being fulfilled in the one person of Jesus Christ. And what he found was, I have this on a slide too, the odds of just eight of those messianic prophecies being fulfilled by one person is one in 10 to the 17th power. That is one in 100 quadrillion. I didn't even know quadrillion was a number, but you can see up there how many zeros that is. It's a lot. And that's just eight of the prophecies. 16 is one in 10 to the 48th power. And remember, there's not just eight or 16 prophecies. There are several. If we look at 48, just 48 of the Messianic prophecies, it is one in 10 to the 157th power. I don't even think a name for that number exists. That's how huge it is. And yet, there are over 300 Old Testament prophecies that came to fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. At this point, we are way beyond the idea that this could be fabricated. Because remember, this book was written over the course of thousands of years by several different people. Just try and get two people to get their story straight on what they did for New Year's Eve, right? They could have been at the same party. You're going to hear two completely different stories. And yet we have over 300 prophecies fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I think at this point we are beyond the realm of could be fabricated, right? Because between the book of Isaiah, when we have many of these prophecies in the birth of Jesus, are thousands of years. I think we've moved now into the realm of the miraculous, of the supernatural. Beyond that, if we want to talk about the idea that the Bible's old, right? Well, the book of Mark, if we look at the New Testament, the book of Mark was written probably 35 to 45 years after the death of Jesus, which is not even a generation. So Mark wrote his gospel, the one we just finished going through, to people that were there when Jesus was alive. And so often we'll have verses like Mark 15, where he says they led him out to crucify him, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now, why would you mention these guys? Well, the reason is because they were probably still alive 
And so Mark is saying, go talk to them. If you don't believe me, talk to them about it. Beyond that, we have language. The experts have looked over the language and the, the type of language used and the dates that it's been recorded as, and they found it to be very consistent. We have archaeology. Never has there been anything discovered that has been able to disprove the Bible. And yet over and over and over again in the Bible, they're finding things, kings, ruins, battles. There was one instance in the book of John, John chapter 9, verse 6, where Jesus heals a man, tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. He tells them to wash there. The problem was that they had never found any, any water in this area. They knew where the area was, but there's no water there. So some people would say, well, that means it's made up, right? This isn't real. But then in 2004, all the way up to 2004, they were digging, not looking for this pool. They were trying to build a new sewer. And what did they find as they dug down? A man-made pool. And they realized this must be the pool of Siloam. There it is. The Bible once again proving itself to be true. Beyond this, there are many extra biblical resources. There's historians like Josephus. Josephus, who was not a believer himself, but he wrote about Jesus. Excuse me. He wrote about Jesus. He even wrote about his crucifixion. He wrote of how his followers called him a doer of wonders. So all over, we have these records of Jesus. In fact, there's more writings about the person of Jesus than there was of Tiberius, the governor Tiberius, the Roman governor, in Jesus' time. We have more writings about Jesus than that historical figure. No serious historian disagrees that Jesus was a real person. All serious historians agree that he was a real person. So again, we are beyond the reliability, the idea of like reliability, we are into the realm of the supernatural. We are beyond the idea that this could be made up, that it could be fabricated, and we're in the realm of a miracle. I think what we have here is more than just a book. The, the idea that this could just be made up or come across like as coincidence, man, that just seems so unrealistic to me. I believe we have more than just a book here. We have the Word of God, our Creator, who created us and wants to speak to us through His Word. Maybe one of the most important things we have to realize about the authenticity of this book is that People were willing to die for it. The people that walked with Jesus were willing to die for their story, that he died and rose again. I think usually if you're faking something, it starts to end the moment they're like, all right, we're going to take you to prison. You're like, all right, I made it up. These people were willing to die for that story. So here's the question that we have to ask, is what will you do with this book? What will you do with this book that has proven itself time and time again to be reliable, that has proven itself to be the Word of God? What will you do with it? I'd like to, you know, give you an idea. Like, let's say you, were, uh, you had a time machine. And maybe in that time machine you were able to go from, like, say, the 80s to, like, 2015. And when you were in the year 2015, you found, I don't know, a sports almanac. And uh, the sports almanac covered all of the scores of the major events and games that were going to happen in the next 100 years. If you had a book that could predict the future in that way and you went back to 1985, how would you treat this book? I mean, you're not just going to fold it up and put it in your back pocket, are you? You're not just going to leave it on the front seat of your flying DeLorean, right? Like, you're going to take care of this book. Like, because otherwise it might fall into the hands of some elderly bully and then change all of the course of history. Who knows? The, the analogy is clear. We have a reliable book that tells us not just our past and our present, but it gives us insight into what our future could be. 
We have more than a magical sports almanac. We have the Word of God. If you had that kind of sports almanac, you'd probably read it all the time. You'd probably start committing it to memory. You would study it. You would start making decisions in your life based off of that. But we have so much more in this book. We have the Word of God. So the question I want to start us out in our series of the basics is what are you going to do with this book? And as we look to a new year, and I know a lot of people are thinking about their New Year's resolutions and things we'd like to get better this year, and one for many people is often reading the Bible, man, I would so, so, so encourage that. And and in, in order to do that, I want to give you just a few tools, but before I do that, I skipped some verses I meant to read you, okay? Here, here is, again, the importance of this book, 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. This story isn't just an abstract story about history, about other things. It was written down for us. This story has us in it. The continued mission of discovery is that we could help people find Jesus in their place in his story. We do that through reading this book. We find ourselves in these pages. In John 17, 20, before Jesus died, he prayed with his disciples, but he prayed These words, he said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus prayed for us. This book, which is centuries old, written by many different people, compiled by many different people, led, I believe, by the hand of God, the Holy Spirit, this book is our story. We are written in the pages. And so my question then for 2022 is, how can we interact with it better? is you're looking at possibly making a New Year's resolution of starting out the year reading the Bible more, how can we interact with it better? And I've just got three really quick, um, quick suggestions you can do to interact with the Bible better. And the first is to commit to it. Decide you're going to make a commitment of being in this word, whether it's daily or weekly. Make a commitment and try and stick to it. I know often we don't stick to our commitments, but figure out what it is that works with you. If you need to check off boxes, get that system going for you. If you need accountability, find somebody that can keep you accountable to reading the Bible. So first, commit to it. Second is find tools to use it. So certainly you can read the Bible on its own, but often you might find it confusing. Well, there's several tools you can use to help you reading the Bible. I want to introduce just two to you right now. The first is the Bible Recap. The Bible Recap is a podcast you can find on any major podcast platform that will go through the entire Bible this year. There's a reading plan that goes through it chronologically. You can get it on the Bible app. You can find the Bible Recap podcast in, in the stores. What this podcast does is after you do the readings, you can listen to a 10-minute debrief that is just a summary of what you read. Because if you're like me, I'll often read something and be like, what did I just read? The Bible recap will break it down for you. One of the small groups that we're starting, actually we'll start this Tuesday, led by Bill Heitfield, will be going through the Bible recap. And a group of people will meet on Tuesday nights to discuss the readings for the week and encourage one another in that process. If you're not involved in a small group, if you'd like to get serious about reading the Bible, I know this is a big commitment, but man, that might be the group for you. If you don't feel like you could do that, man, just use the Bible recap on your own. That's what I did this last year. I listened to the entire Bible through the Bible app's audio version. So as I was driving or whatever, I listened to the whole Bible all the way through, and then that recap podcast would bring back some of the things that I'd read. 
Another one I'd like to recommend to you is The Bible Project. You can find it at thebibleproject.com. You can go to YouTube. They have a new, a brand new app that just came out the beginning of this month, yesterday, and it is incredible. The Bible Project. It has, they have created really engaging videos for every book of the Bible that gives an overview summary of every book of the Bible. On their new app, they have different reading plans that you can participate in that will help you figure out different ways to read the Bible and tools that you could use as you read through the Bible. Very simple, but makes it very helpful as you read to try and figure out what you're reading and make it more engaging. So find tools. First, commit to it. Find the tools to do it. And then the third thing is to enjoy it. Sometimes reading like, may not be your favorite thing. Figure out what can make it your favorite thing. For me, it is coffee and being outside. I enjoy both of those things. So I try and read my Bible with coffee and often outside because it just makes the whole thing something I'll look forward to more. So there's some really easy suggestions. And then just practically, here's three, if you're taking notes, here's just three things to maybe journal as you read or to ask yourself as you read. Is the first thing is this, what was the writer trying to communicate to his audience? So as you read a chapter, figure out, well, who's the writer and what were they trying to communicate to the people they were writing to? And that'll give you new insight into the scripture. The second question you can ask is, but what is God trying to communicate to me? So we have a writer writing to a specific audience, but then we also have God speaking to us. That's the second question to ask as you read this is, God, what are you trying to say to me through this? And the third is this, based off of this reading, what changes do I need to make internally and what changes do I need to make externally? Because at the end of the day, we can have this memorized backwards and forwards. We can know it all. We can talk about it every day. But if we do not apply it to our lives and begin to change internally and then our actions externally, then it's been a waste for us. And so that's just some real quick things for you guys this week as we start out. I know it's a different kind of sermon, a lot more maybe information, but I hope also some encouragement to you as we begin a new year to dive into the Word of God, which is a love letter written to you. So that as things get hard, we are measuring our lives by something that has proven itself time and time again to be level, that has proven itself time and time again to be trustworthy has proven itself to be God's letter to us. Because as Isaiah 10:8 says, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. So as a church, let us stand on this word. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for what went into the creation of this book. And we know, God, that that in itself is a miracle. And so, God, I pray that we would not take lightly the gift we have in the Word of God, but instead this year we would dive into it as a church. This year we would hear from you through these words. We would see ourselves in these pages. God, let us be a people, let us be a church that stands on your unchanging Word and nothing else. It's in Jesus' name I pray.